Hello friends and welcome back to It's All Relative, the show that explores life's issues through a generational lens, helping us understand how we are evolving as consumers, workers and citizens. Each episode I shall be tackling a juicy question that I want answered by interviewing experts, voices and practitioners along the way to unravel the complex answer. This is part two with Zach Dykewald, where we're doing a deep dive on the subject of Chinese youth. In this episode, Zach and I continue our conversation, and in particular, focusing on the changing workplace and culture of masculinity that exists within China. Zach, it's great to have you back. Great to be here. Thanks so much for having me. I want to begin by perhaps addressing the elephant in the room, really, which is, if you don't mind me saying, you are a white Western male coming into China and studying Chinese culture. I wonder what obstacles you've encountered and perhaps how you've overcome those obstacles as a way of generating your research about Chinese millennials kind of authentically. Gosh, um, so there's a few obstacles, honestly. Um, one of them you touched on really well, which is that I'm, I'm, you know, I grew up in California, a white guy. I hadn't been to Asia till I was 20. Like this was not something I intended on doing. And in fact, for years, I did not want to write Young China, even though I was so frustrated by the gap between what people knew and what was actually happening on the ground. And it took a, a couple of Chinese friends who, you know, existed in a much different ecosystem of political correctness and what's allowed and what's not, what should exist and what shouldn't. And um, a friend reminded me, there's a Chinese saying, it's Panguanzhiqing. It, it basically means the observer sees clearly. And in China, there's a really strong tradition of either foreigners or people who are sort of part of the the China diaspora, but who have either left and come back, but people who are not sort of in the trees, showing China to itself and showing China to the world. And I've really tried to occupy the bridge work role, which is not replacing any narratives, but rather elevating them and allowing them to be heard. Because one of the most difficult aspects particularly in the United States, but I would say a lot of Western Europe as well, is there's so much information that comes from China that people don't trust. And, you know, I've been on a number of panels where by virtue of a person being Chinese, what they're saying about the government or what they're saying about civil society there just is not trusted, which is totally unfair. It's almost like a slippery ability to have one foot in in both cultures and both languages and both sort of day-to-day societies and, and be that bridge has, has really been the role that I've been trying to occupy. But it's it's a tough one to, it, it's not always the easiest thing to explain. Does it feel more problematic in these times when it's all about kind of one's authentic truth, almost feeling something is, is more valued now than thinking something? Do you feel that? Is that an obstacle for you or not really? To a certain extent. So like the first question that anyone asks me whenever I'm about to give a speech or I'm invited in for some client work or whatever it is, is, is not, you know, how many years have you lived in China? It's do you speak Mandarin? Right. So consistently. And I think that's actually a a totally good question because in a lot of ways it reflects your your level of immersion and and your level of actually living it. I think to a certain extent, I've faced these challenges. I actually remember when I was at, I I gave a talk at Google um, in 2018 for their next billion user uh, group, which was an awesome, awesome group. And there were protests at Google. It wasn't about me. It was actually about Google entering China at all. Mm. Um, but it ended up leading to a very in-depth conversation about, gosh, how do you be a foreigner talking about China at a, at a moment like this? And what we basically came down to, and by the way, this is a group from Singapore, they're from Pakistan, they're mm. from Kenya, this is, they're from Brazil. This is a very uh, next billion user market set of people. And they were like, gosh, one of the hard parts is in, in the US and in Western Europe, these are places that are wrestling with their own history of race and narrative ownership and often projecting that on other places. Because what I'm doing is not an issue in China. It's just not. 
did your book sell a lot in China? It sold well in China. And right. um, oh, that's interesting. Okay. And so I, you know, I gave a talk at Columbia University in China. There was a hundred people there. Um, it's the sort of thing that like maybe a thousand people would watch in the United States if it was posted online. There was a hundred thousand people watching it live. Wow. Got like five million views over the course of the next couple of weeks. China is relatively ethnically monolithic. There are very few foreigners. There, uh, the vast majority of foreigners who are there do not speak Chinese mm. and haven't really immersed themselves there. There's a curiosity in how they're perceived by the outer world, mixed with a certain amount of vitriol and resentment to how China is often covered in the media. I remember when I met my uh, a potential Chinese publisher. Uh, one of the first books that they gave me, I, you know, I asked for a, a book in Chinese. I, I had some train time over the next week. Was why we can't trust the BBC. And it was basically how, like, there's this version of the BBC that continuously lambasts anything China and China related. Now, whether or not that's true and whether or not that's fair, I read the book and I could say there's some aspects of it that were very much not fair. But there is this sense that because of the government system within China and the perception of how people are controlled there, there's this portrayal of the people mm. that is often unfair and skewed towards the worst, which people are at. You know, it's really interesting. When I was teaching in China, I gave all my students the task to give a speech in English about someone they felt had made an impact in China or in their own personal lives. And most of them did like David Beckham and like Vivian Westwood, all these 20th century, 21st century icons. And one of my students did a English Christian socialist presentation on this guy called R.H. Tawney. Do you know him? He went to China in the 1930s and wrote a book called Land and Labour in China. And, you know, this 21-year-old gave this beautifully well-rounded, insightful and quite impassioned speech about what he'd learned from R.H. Tawney about his homeland. And I think, you know, it's a bit like Bill Bryson in the UK. He does these kind of tours of the UK and tells us what the UK is about, even though he's American. (laughs) There is a place, there's a really important place for the foreigner giving the outsider perspective I wonder whether the achievement of producing, what did you say, 11 million graduates a Mm -hmm. year? Compared to 1 million in 1999. I mean, that's insane. That's the population of London being churned out of university every year. Is there a change in appreciation, value, attitude towards education as the source of great opportunity? I know there's a whole conversation about it being a real closed shop Mm. and corruption and and also massive levels of graduate unemployment in China, like there is in India, like there is in the UK. There is growing disillusionment around particularly tertiary education as a natural pathway to opportunity and basically middle-class stability. What's that conversation look like in China? I think in China, there isn't a clear alternative yet. Right. Like it's still the best option. And there's definitely, especially in like 2015, there was so much discussion about starting up and there was so much encouragement from government as well. I mean, like the, the capital markets in China were frothing for a decade, essentially. And this idea that we want to encourage innovation. The the big question for this young generation is can they go from test monsters, which is what they call themselves, cultural glide, people who are great at filling in bubbles, but not necessarily great at engineering in the real world. Can they move from that to actual creators and innovators? And that's the defining question for this young generation. When you think about that demographic pyramid being inverted, if you're at the bottom, that means you need to find greater sources of economic strength, which means, of course, innovating. Crystal clear in China. Now, these jobs at places like Tencent, Pinduoduo, Alibaba, Meituan, like the the Silicon Valley tech company equivalents that are supposed to be the best ones. They're so in demand and job creation, especially now that they're actually doing layoffs, the job creation just can't keep up with education levels. 
there's definitely portions of the country and this educated youth that feel like they got cheated. They feel like, all right, we were told if we just do these things and go to these schools, these opportunities will exist. And they don't. There's actually a great quote from from George Bush Jr.'s autobiography. I did not read the whole thing. Really? Uh, so so don't. Yeah, yeah. It was like wow. 700 pages. That's no, a I, I, had, I had heard this quote secondhand. I downloaded the Kindle version. I searched it. Right. George Bush is asking, I think it was Hu Jintao or Zhang Zemin. I should, I should know this. But asking the leader of China at the time, what keeps you up at night? George Bush says terrorism, of course. And the leader of China at the time, I believe it's Hu Jintao, says trying to create something like 11,000, or I think it's 30,000 jobs every every month. And I should look this up and we can put this in the show notes. I think it's I think it has to be more than that. But the, the pace of job creation, trying to keep up with the pace of education, which is so important to China moving up the value chain, has been an issue in China for decades. And now, as with the financial crisis, but, but more pointedly now with economic slowdown, there's a real questioning for young people that is this system going to get me what I want? It plays to that idea of the problem of elite overproduction, mm -hmm. basically if you create too many graduates in the world and you don't fulfill their expectations through decent jobs and decent wages and decent housing, essentially. You create a political problem as much as a social frustration. How has COVID and the COVID experience impacted Chinese society? And we talk a lot and are still talking a lot in the West about the impact over here on work, on family, on education and all of that. So I'd be interested in the Chinese perspective. And then secondly, how do you think the government, rightly or wrongly, I suppose, why has the government played it in the way that it has and what's the fallout? So I want to take us back to January of 2020 and um, epic failure within China, particularly local governance, as it was described in within China, trying to sweep COVID under the rug, obviously didn't work. And then there was a major pivot within the country and this real rallying cry for the country to come together to fight this thing. And come June of 2020, offices were open, malls were open, China had felt like it won. That's right. Which is something that we forget. There's like this incredibly short memory. There is there's about 18 months of COVID where people in China could point to the death count around the world as a sort of morbid scoreboard of which country had handled it better. Which for most people outside of China is just really tough to digest because we know where it came from. We know that it was poorly handled at the beginning. And there's a variety of draconian measures, particularly data tracking and, and these health codes that had a lot of people around the world uncomfortable. But in China, people felt like they were living life. And they kind of were. And the government loved that narrative. Uh, because one of the things that we don't remember when we talk about young people in their relationship with their government and people in their relationship with their government in China specifically is for like the revolution to happen. By the way, this is the question that I get asked the most. When's the revolution going to happen? They don't ask it necessarily quite as explicitly, but in all of my speeches, all of my everything, like what happens when this young generation is so disillusioned that they want a different style of government? There's two things that need to happen for that. First, they need to be deeply dissatisfied with their own government. And second, there has to be an appealing, enviable alternative. And so I've said this to US politicians that the biggest threat to the CCP is a high-functioning, enviable, specifically U.S. government, because we're really considered as the other to China when you consider the scale of the economy. And so like the Trump era was an enormous gift to Chinese politicians because it showed the shambolic U.S. government that wasn't high-functioning or enviable. So COVID was consistent with that. We've handled this better until the Shanghai lockdowns. The Shanghai lockdowns were, it was the angriest I'd ever seen people throughout the country at the government and openly expressing it. 
And it was also the largest scale failure that I've seen, which is a crazy thing to say after COVID, but with very little recovery. You're talking about around 100 days of lockdown in a city that's larger than the population of Australia. And so there was this major disillusionment then. What about now? I have never seen protests on the scale in mainland China and seriously differentiating from Hong Kong here. In my 12 plus years in and around China, which isn't much, but people have not seen this since Tiananmen. Now it is not the same as Tiananmen. And I, I wanna be super clear here, but the level of upset is severe. And we've seen the government respond. When you're looking at the government in China, I really, really encourage people not to try to guess at what Xi Jinping is, is imagining or dreaming of in the morning. There's this like great leader, like psychology approach to understanding regulation around the world that's so seductive because it's like the Disney version of how policy happens, but it's much easier to look at the constraints of the government in order to understand what they're going to do. And so there was the political risk of COVID ripping through the population particularly during this transition of power between the party Congress in October and the People's Congress in March, which still hasn't happened yet. So there's that political risk. And then there's the political risk of just the amount of upset from the population. And as long as the political risk of COVID ripping through the population, which would create enormous amount of upset, exceeded that of the upset of the population, zero COVID was going to stay in place till March, the People's Congress, where Xi Jinping would officially become the leader of China and there wouldn't be that short-term political pressure on the government. Can I ask a really stupid question? Why haven't they vaccined? So, okay. And this goes back to the narrative that was created. The narrative that was created in China for those 18 months where we're doing it better and we don't need a perfect vaccine. And the fact that, you know, Sinovac doesn't work so well is like not so important when you look at the actual death count. And there could have been a case to be made, but it was, it was short-term thinking. And so China really, the leadership really backed themselves into this corner as the rest of the world emerged and drank and date and went to work and, and partied at the World Cup and like wh whatever it was, and China was still stuck in zero COVID, it would take a huge admission of both fault yeah. as well as technological inferiority to specifically the United States. I can tell you that if these vaccines had a Swiss flag stuck on the, the box or the crate when they were imported into China, this probably wouldn't be an issue. They'd be imported but it would be a major admission of inferiority to their strategic competitor. That also flies in the face of the narrative that they've been building for two years at the most politically weak moment of the government, which is where we're at. Do you think, apart from obviously now the government reversing to a certain extent, is that mm -hmm. an erosion of authority that will be further and further eroded? Or do you think, okay, they've stopped the rot and the questioning? They've reasserted their authority with these measures. What's going to be the ripple effect? And there's two there's two narratives here. One is capitulation and one is they're listening. <laughs> right. Uh, one is the government has capitulated and one is the government has acknowledged, you know, the democratic feedback idea. Look, within China and Xi Jinping is, is maybe the best example of this. The government is extraordinarily well incentivized to make the most amount of people in the country happy. And you've heard me talk about this sort of political period that we're in. It's really important that people understand this. Xi Jinping is not Putin. If at any point he has more value as a scapegoat than a leader, his position of authority is, is under real threat because ultimately the CCP needs to stay in power. And Xi Jinping is, has been the best tool to do that. There's a saying in China that goes, uh, it's, it's a war saying. It's at the first drums, excitement, right? Imagine the first drums at the beginning of war, excitement. At the second drums, a certain amount of wariness. By the third drums, exhaustion. 
back in January, where the leadership asked the public to rally behind and, and make these sacrifices, it was the duty of the Chinese people to do that. By the second drums come Shanghai, people are like, oh man, this is bad. And like, I don't feel the same level of patriotism and or nationalism towards this. We've reached exhaustion. And I think rather than capitulation, you're talking about a savvy evaluation of political risk from the government, where they basically decided that even though they hadn't built the off-ramps, and this is where I get concerned, by the way, going into this winter, the off-ramps for zero COVID, which were higher vaccination rates, particularly amongst the elderly, more beds and more ICU units and, and sort of COVID outposts around the country, those haven't been built yet. But the government had decided that we are at a point of critical political volatility, where if we don't make concessions, if we don't show that glimmer of hope, which is what's been showed, we're in real trouble. And so it was a survival instinct, and I don't think they were wrong for it. For the majority of people within China, they don't see this as a failure of government yet, but the bank of goodwill has been seriously strained right. over the last nine months. And ultimately, I think that's what this capitulation or we're listening shift has shown is that People need to be offered a glimmer of hope. Or if that bank of goodwill gets further depleted, the government is going to be in worse trouble. And I think the government knows that, right. which is why we got the signal that we got. I'd like to just move on a bit to talk about work. Give us a snapshot, a snapshot of some of the conversations <laughs> that are happening around work. Yeah, so there, there's been far fewer changes in China. People are in offices in China and they're back in offices now in, in force. And, and that's sort of what's expected. Um, there's been very little flexibility around work from home now that people don't have to. Why is that? Is that space? What is that? Tech? Security? What? I think it's management. You have to remember that China has not had white collar work for that long. Right. There hasn't been knowledge work for that long. And so there's a style of management that is evolved around people being in the same place, creating something together. Often that's a physical object. Quick injection here. Because of the pace of change in China, China does not have generation gaps like we have in the West. They have generation gulfs. And so rather than doing generations on the 20-year timescale, which is often sort of the division here in the United States, in China, they do it on the 10-year or the five-year timescale just because things move so fast. And so I'm working with an organization. It's a Fortune 500 company. There's this one gentleman who's running the China business. He's been there his whole life, but he's 55. And so his version of China that he grew up with and the management culture that he rose up in that led to his success is fundamentally different than the management culture that is evolving and needs to evolve for that particular team to become much more strategy-oriented rather than just execution-oriented. Right. And so the, these things are shifting. You have younger groups that are just, um, that you know, are 20 to 30-year-old young people who, who I work with um, and help me with my research, and they work from everywhere. That's not the norm yet in China. You know, it's something that we've been working up to, I would say, for 20 or 30 years in mm. the West yeah, yeah. that China has probably only been working up to for five is there still a culture of deference, which means, and to a certain extent, lack of trust and lack of autonomy that means that working from home isn't really socially acceptable? Yes. So we hear this all the time. I mean, there's there's people who, you know, whose managers had them take timestamp selfies uh, every hour. No way. Uh, and this is early on in the pandemic. This is 2020. So it's not, it's not the same now. I wouldn't even say this is the norm, but it, there's definitely significantly less trust. You know, there aren't like the Adam Grants running around being like, hey, you know, we've done all this research and a four day week is, is better. And so there's this sense that employers can do what's best for them rather than what's best for the employee. Mm. Well, there's a much different level of employee clout here mm. uh, in the West, very broadly speaking, mm. than there is in China. 
in respect to work, surveillance culture dominates Chinese work culture in a way that it does perhaps Chinese political culture, or is that not true? Because it's not socially acceptable in the West, I don't think, to monitor workers in that kind of way, right? So that aspect, I would say yes. There's there's a certain amount of just expectation of how closely they're being monitored. That is, it's much more the norm in China, and and people are far less allergic to it. Again, they also have less ability to push back if if right. as an employer, yeah, yeah. Um, they just have more power. I think for global organizations in particular, the dynamics between Chinese employees and the China and that quote unquote China team versus the global team is changing drastically mm, right now. Mm. And so for some companies and, and you know, the majority of companies in China are not global, but when you think about sort of the tip of the spear and like the top quartile or even probably top 10%, you're really seeing some dramatic shifts that are pretty exciting and also very difficult for global organizations in terms of how the relationship between sort of headquarters and the China-based team is evolving. I believe you have one more point on work culture that you'd like to squeeze in. Tell me. Yeah, so I think about this a lot. It seems like there's been three phases over the last 20 or so years. The first phase has been entering the China market, bringing whatever uh, global organizations have to China and expecting people in China to buy it. And, And that definitely happened, particularly during an era where foreign meant better which really define early consumer era in, in China. The second phase is this idea of localizing for China, which is, okay, people in China actually want different things. And this one's riskier because especially over the last two or three years, as there's been regulatory shifts and COVID economy, fortunately things are now looking a little bit sunnier, but um, it, it's, it's recognition that people in China want slightly different things. And in order to succeed here, we're competing against increasingly capable national companies who know what people in China want far better than we do. And, and recognizing that they actually have to create something unique for China. The third phase is, I think, the most enlightened one. So there's a meme here <laughs> where like each phase you get progressively enlightened. The third phase, I think, is such a big opportunity. And I see so few people doing it outside of the space and sort of arcing back to the Google Next Billion user team. So this is a, a good full circle here. Um, the third phase is not uh, localizing for China, but leading from China. China is the most mobile first economy in the world. I'm in Mexico right now doing a project understanding China goes global, basically. I'm talking with a lot of Mexican entrepreneurs who are receiving Chinese investment, and uh, particularly in fintech here. And I asked one of the fintech CEOs who has a 200 person company and they're $150 million in investment. Has anyone on your team actually seen what it looks like for a completely mobile first payment economy to exist? Right, yeah. And of course he said, no. And I'm like, well, that's wild because it's (laughs) it's existed for eight years in China. The way that people interact with money, with vendors, with debt is so radically different in China than it is everywhere else in the world. And particularly for Western brands, you have to understand that China is so much more socioeconomically proximate to most of the markets in the world. And so what I've seen some brands do quite effectively, very few, but the ones I've seen do it really well is recognizing that they need to lean into their China-based team, not just as an execution center, but as a a strategy originator. As the source of creation. Totally. Learning from what's happening in China and bringing it elsewhere. It's copying the copycat, which makes people uncomfortable, but it's recognizing that what's what's being created in China for that marketplace is far more forward-leaning and relevant to, to most markets around the world than what we're seeing at home. And so those three phases are really important and not enough people are leading into the third. 
Right. And in a way, that's a kind of nice way of saying that that's how China becomes the world's global foremost economic superpower, as well as cultural and innovation powerhouse. And finally, I just want to briefly touch on masculinity. We talked about leftover women. We talked about the empowerment of women in in China. I just wondered, you know, we have, I think, an ongoing conversation in the West about masculinity and what it means in the post Me Too movement in the context of awful people like Andrew Tate. How is the conversation around masculinity playing out in China? Chinese men often feel like they're in a difficult position. Um, I brought up the example of leftover women last time. Uh, I'd like to bring up the example of parent eaters. So there's what this, is that? yeah, parent eaters. It's this phenomenon that has to do with, you know, delayed weaning and, and kid adults, which is a conversation that you and I have talked about, but the shifting in life stages in China. So the basic idea is this. There's young people, particularly men in China, who are single children, who are at the bottom of this demographic pyramid, right? You typically have four grandparents, two parents, one child, upside down demographic pyramid. The result of the largest baby boom in the world between uh, 1950 and 1980, 440 million people uh, added to the population in China, followed, of course, by the most unnatural and largest baby bust in the world with the one child policy. And so you have these young people who are urbanizing and moving into cities, and particularly for young men. In China, there's no religion, but there is family. So they're being told that like really the pinnacle of, of um, what it is to be good is to have a family and to have children. Now, to be considered an eligible bachelor in China, you have to own property. It's this sort of mutation of this concept of, of anfengan, the, the, like a feeling of security. And so these young men are going into cities. Um, they need to buy property in order to have a wife, in order to have children. Again, children being sort of a, a big symbol of what it means to be good for both men and women. But the problem is seven out of 10 of the least livable cities in the world, when you compare average income to average cost of housing, are in China. Seven out of 10. Seven out of 10. This is according according to the IMF. And by the way, when I talk with sort of investors, this is a great example of how sort of sociology drives economics. You cannot understand the modern real estate market if you do not understand the modern marriage market in China. Yeah, yeah. And so you, you have these young men who are trying to make their parents happy and get married and have children. But in order to make their parents happy and have children, they have to eat away at their parents' financials. So they're borrowing large sums of money from their parents in order to buy the apartment, in order to find a wife, in order to have the kid to make their parents happy. So it's this strange, vicious cycle of these guys, these young men who are feeling like they're caught between a rock and a hard place. If you could imagine tradition and modernity as these two tectonic plates, and I think it's the same for women as well, just around different issues, tradition is the sense of what's always been important, this idea of family, this idea mm. of being responsible, this idea of being good to your parents and being able to look after them. But then on the other side, you have the pressures of modernity, which is that people get educated for another 10 years now instead of just starting families when they're 18. The urbanization drives the price of everything through the roof. And so it's much difficult to, to have a home and to, and to buy property. The tension between those two are grading against one another. Mm. And this young generation, the post-90s generation, is really at that fault line between those two tectonic plates. Getting ground down, but also deciding where those two tectonic plates are going to fit and meet. Right. Which is why I call them the restless generation. It's this exciting moment where modern Chinese identity is basically being defined in real time. But if you remember from your identity formation years... Uh, identity formation. I'm still in them, darling. It's, it's a B. It's tough. Yeah, it's not easy. <laughs> it's not fun. It's like, it hurts. It's awkward. You feel weird. You have to like upset people, people who, that you, who you love. And so these things are really being negotiated real time right now in China. 
These conversations are very much happening in the West. I mean, the the whole process of delayed adolescence and extending that those years before you have the swelling of life's responsibilities, whether it's having kids or looking after early parents or paying a mortgage. So in a way, on the surface, the differences, I think, feel more extreme than they actually are. And the parallels and the similarities between that demographic, those under 30s um, in China and I think the West is they're actually quite similar. I have mixed feelings about this. It's without a doubt that baby boomers in China versus baby boomers in the United States or Western Europe were significantly different. Like the the distance between those peer cohorts is almost unimaginable. Mm -hmm. It was like they're from different universes to a certain extent in terms of, or at least from different time periods in terms of the amount of socioeconomic development, their exposure to the outside world, et cetera, et cetera. So we're definitely getting closer uh, in terms of the youth cohort around the world. One of the things that I think is difficult, and, and I see a lot of brands stumble on, is they see sort of the buzzwords, individualization, subcultures, pushback against gender norms and marriage norms. And they sound pretty similar from, from culture to culture, from market to market, mm. from place to place. Mm. Yeah. The reason pushing these changes and then the outcomes, which of course lead to the outcomes of these changes, even though they can be described by similar buzzwords, their actual content character and texture is still quite different yeah, yeah. Uh, from from China to certainly the United States, which of course I, I know better than Western Europe. And so it's a bit of a slippery slope because what ends up happening is you see global marketers and, and business people sort of trying to treat young Chinese people like, young Americans. like their own kids or their own young people just with different haircuts. Right. But that doesn't fly. That's not what people in China want. Well, no, that's a really important point because there is an assumption that Gen Z in particular represents almost the kind of first legitimate global generation. They listen to K-pop as much as kind of use the same apps. You can't talk about baby boomers being a global generation in the way that you genuinely can, or at least on a surface level. Like you say, the same motivators, perhaps same buzzwords, but the permutations, the nuances, the, the way that those things kind of play out are very, very different. So there's no way, for example, that you cannot have geographic graphically specific marketing campaigns for separate Gen Z cohorts. Zach, you've been brilliant, as I know you would. And that's just super, super fantastic and and so holistic in the way that you've laid out the different generations and their expectations in respect to work, relationships, home ownership, generational obligations to their elders, all of those kind of things. It's been absolutely fascinating talking to you. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks so much for having me, Eliza. Thank you so much for listening to It's All Relative. You can also connect with me on LinkedIn, Twitter, TikTok and Instagram at Eliza Philby. And why not subscribe to my weekly newsletter to hear more from me about how we are changing as consumers, workers and as citizens. Oh, and do rate us on Apple Reviews. It helps me keep this podcast going.